Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the week of March 4th, 2009. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, spooky action at a distance, quantum entanglement, nano radios, and more from the March issue of Scientific American Magazine. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. John Rennie is the editor-in-chief of Scientific American. We sat down in the magazine's library to talk about the latest issue. Well, John. Yes, Steve? You've, you've really done it this time. I'd like, <laughs> I'd like to start with a couple of, couple of readings. Uh-oh. From the article, our cover article. On the cover, of course, we have, was Einstein wrong with a, an illustration of Albert that makes him look like, uh, he's in desperate need of some medication. And the, <laughs> the article itself is called A Quantum Threat to Special Relativity. Yes. Oh, before I get your comments, again, I, I have two, two short readings from the article. One from this sidebar called Many Worlds. All right. The Many Worlds interpretation asserts that quantum measurements in effect, split the universe into branches where all the different outcomes occur in parallel. So your universe can be local if copies of you inhabit myriad unseen parallel universes. This approach, however, is beset by many difficult problems. It's not a how-to, Steve. <laughs> I should say. Now, uh, I just also want to uh, read one other short short passage and and then make a comment after which I will allow you to roam free over the plains of quantum mechanics. Oh good, I cuz I really admire your interview technique so far. <laughs> Thank you. All right, so we're talking about uh, uh the uh the physicist Bell and so just here's the sentence. From Bell's work it emerged that Bohr was wrong. We're talking about Niels Bohr. From Bell's work, it emerged that Bohr was wrong, that nothing was wrong with his understanding of quantum mechanics, and that Einstein was wrong about what was wrong with Bohr's understanding. And your point is, Steve? <laughs> this is a challenging article. Well, sure, sure. Uh... And you know what it made me think of? And then we'll explain what, what's actually in the article. <laughs> made me think of that scene in the, in the Superman movie, the first Superman movie with Christopher Reeve, where uh, he's flying around with holding Margot Kidder, right? And he says, don't worry, I've got you. <laughs> and she says, you've got me? Who's got you? <laughs> Steve, Steve, the thing you're losing, losing track of here is that uh, the article in question, A Quantum Threat to Special Relativity, is uh, written by uh, David Z. Albert and Rivka Galchin. And uh, uh, David Z. Albert is uh, happens to be one of the uh, leading physicist philosophers of our time. So... You're in very good hands. I'm not saying Superman good hands, Steve. I'm not going that far, but but very good hands when it comes to understanding the complexities of how new work, uh, experimental work being done on on quantum mechanics uh, has been causing more and more problems for Einstein's theory of special relativity, and in effect showing why it is that uh, that that uh, in the the now, quite old conflict between special relativity and some of the consequences of quantum theory uh, that it seems as though uh, Einstein was uh, wrong. Not grossly wrong. He's Albert Einstein, for heaven's sakes, but uh, significantly wrong in uh, w with respect to a problem of what's called non-locality. Yeah, and let me say, I'm, I in no way meant to impugn the article or the author. It's a terrific article. Yes. The What I'm 
what I had such difficulty with, which I shouldn't have any, uh, there's no reason for me to be ashamed because physicists have had difficulty with these things for many decades now, are the concepts laid out in the article. The universe is a very strange place. Yes, it is. It is indeed. And when, you know, you're dealing with, with quantum mechanics and special relativity, you know, you are, you are in, in very good company with, uh, with both physicists and lay people who have difficulty understanding some of the concepts. But, uh, uh, yes, this article may be challenging in a lot of ways, but very fulfilling if you spend the time, Steve. Now, the, the interesting thing is that what Einstein was wrong about was not necessarily what physicists thought he might have been wrong about. It's something else that he was wrong about. It's, well, yeah, I mean, there's there's been this conflict going back early into the time when uh, the, the history of, of quantum mechanics of the, that it didn't sit well with uh, the the more classical physics universe uh, that uh, that Einstein was working with when he was developing his relativity theories. People may have a hard time thinking of the relativity theory as sort of classical physics, but in a lot of ways, it really it really is. And let me talk about that in terms of the Superman thing I brought up. He's touching her. That's how he's able to transfer forces to her. And right. that's what we're used to. We're used to, if if I want to make contact with you, I can either touch you on the arm or I can talk, and that's going to send vibrations through the air that are going to vibrate your eardrum or, and your, your ear bones, or I can pick up a telephone, which does something else, and I can do that. You know, I can talk to people in outer space with the same technology, the same idea that something is touching something is touching something ad infinitum, uh, things are vibrating and right. eventually the the action has some kind of an effect at a distance right however what what we're talking about in here is that and that's called locality exactly and what we're talking about is that it turns out it looks like the universe is non-local where there are things that are way far apart from each other that somehow are in contact with each other in terms of intrinsic properties. Right, right. I mean, more specifically, what that, what, uh, what you're getting at with that is, is the fact that uh, you can, uh, you can have certain particles, for example, or larger objects can, in principle, they, they can be entangled with one another is what the physicists would say that is that their quantum states uh, certain of their properties are are bound up together and that they bear a certain distinct relationship to one another and that what's interesting is that because they're entangled that relationship remains no matter how far apart those two different objects may be. Uh, so uh, the, the, it's as though the two particles, if one is sort of spinning up, the other one is always spinning down, and uh, even if their the, relative spins uh, always will have that same sort of balance to one another, no matter where they are in the universe. Now, the, the, the idea that Einstein held out for was that, was that, well, the fact that it seemed as though you could have this sort of weird non-locality, as though things that were extremely far apart, um, that, that they might somehow still be in contact with one another, that seemed like a kind of spooky action at a distance, and he didn't like that. And in particular, that was really at odds with special relativity, which said you certainly couldn't have instantaneous 
uh, spooky action at a distance, uh, because you couldn't have any sort of information passing instantaneously. It would be bound at least by the, the speed of light. Uh, so he didn't care for that. So uh, what Einstein was arguing was that to the extent that quantum theory seemed to say that's what was happening, it meant that quantum theory was incomplete. It was missing something. There was some other kind of factor determining why those uh, two entangled particles might actually still relate to one another, even if we couldn't see it. It's, uh, it's, I guess, in a way you could sort of think of it as, uh, look, if it's, if it's daytime in New York, uh, it's uh, nighttime in Sydney, Australia. There's a reason for that. It's because they happen to be on opposite sides of the Earth. Um, there's a, was, the question was, is there some sort of underlying connection that was there that would help to resolve this this problem in, in some sort of classical terms. And uh, this is something that physicists have been arguing about for a very, very long time, but uh, what the, the authors of uh, the, this article uh, point out is that uh, the the work by uh, John Bell, uh, and, but also some more recent experimental work, seems to indicate that, in fact, there really is a deep non-locality to the universe, that there really is uh, some way in which there's not some sort of missing X factor, that if we just knew what it was, that would explain everything, that we would see the dominoes connecting those, those invisible tiny dominoes connecting those different particles and that set up the, the effect of going one to the other. So this experimental work seems to suggest we really do have this deep non-locality to the universe, which means that the universe is a much weirder place than uh, Einstein would have liked, and uh, and it's something with a lot of different sorts of profound implications for understanding the universe at a at a quantum level. Yeah, it, the article uses the word spooky twice without specifically making reference to that famous Einstein phrase, spooky action at a distance, but right. that's what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. So the thing that Einstein was wrong about was in his 1935 paper criticizing or, or finding some kind of incompleteness in quantum mechanics. Uh, the thing he was wrong about was his underlying assumption of locality. Right, right. The idea was that, in effect, uh, locality, that that had to be true. Uh, and since you were coming up with a result that seemed to suggest that, that you didn't have locality, that somehow something was missing from quantum theory. Uh, Niels Bohr who took the opposite side of that argument, said, no, no, the quantum theory is fine. Your problem is that you're trying to make sense of the world in some sort of classical terms, and you can't do that uh, in by looking through the lens of quantum physics. You're, basically, he was saying to Einstein, you're the problem here. You're trying to ask the wrong question. And, uh, and now we're starting to get this this answer that in fact um well they were sort of both wrong um that that in fact bohr was right that the quantum theory was was still really there but that it wasn't that you couldn't ask that question it's that non-locality actually applies even bohr thought the world must actually have locality at some at some level and maybe it looks like that's really not true yeah, again, let me read that sentence again. From Bell's work, it emerged that Bohr was wrong, that nothing was wrong with his understanding of quantum mechanics, and that Einstein was wrong about what was wrong with Bohr's understanding. <laughs> you know, it's pretty funny because these two guys were pretty smart guys. That's that's what I hear. But uh, apparently Bell was also kind of amazingly bright. John Bell, also very smart, yes. So what do we do with this article? Where do we put it in our 
picture of of the world and the universe? Well, that's a, that's a good that's a good question. I, I think you can certainly drop it into the big big category of physics articles that uh, illuminate the universe by telling us that it is indeed much more deeply complicated and counterintuitive than most of us would think. Uh, that uh, that when you start to look at the fringes of of what we understand about physics and and uh, how the world works, you really get the sense that uh, we are locked into a certain set of perceptions that do not necessarily apply, that, uh, that, that our kind of common sense, everyday intuitions are not a very good guide to understanding how the universe can behave at certain scales or under certain conditions. What is interesting is that this still doesn't mean, by the way, that uh, that now you could necessarily build some kind of uh, magical subspace radio that's going to help you be able to communicate faster than the speed of light or something like that. Uh, that the the proofs that were developed in the past showing that no, you can't take advantage of uh, these entanglement factors to help you communicate faster than the speed of light. Those all apparently still seem to apply, um, but it just shows that the, the underlying sense of how the universe works and how we're going to build theories that improve upon what we have now for understanding the physics, um, that uh, that's just more and more intriguing all the time. Well, I'm looking forward to reading this article a second time, actually, because I, I think that uh, this is an example of a piece that on a second and even a third reading will uh, will really start to to permeate my my deep uh uh what's the word dullness yes <laughs> good of you to go with dullness on that sure <laughs> can you think of another word that i i can but your salary review is some some ways off steve all right well this is uh as as we've said it's a challenging piece but it's really worth it's worth going through and there's a lot of really fascinating stuff in there and and of course you know the question was Einstein wrong is is one that uh, is addressed by many people working on uh, fascinating theories in their basements around the country and the world. And we hear from a lot of them. But uh, this is a profound uh, look at that question as opposed to uh, some of the things that uh, maybe some some dabblers in physics have come up with. That's that's right. Now, we'll move from there to something that. Uh, is really easy to get your mind around. Thank a, heavens. A teeny tiny radio. Yes, a teeny tiny radio. In fact, the tiniest radio in the universe at this point, a nano radio, if you will, made... Truly nano. We're not just using no, that word. No, exactly right. This is a radio that was constructed from a single carbon nanotube. And actually, sort of multi-layered carbon nanotube, but a single carbon nanotube. But it is an actual radio. I mean, not just like a little radio device, but an actual radio that could tune into a radio broadcast and could then uh, communicate that information on to um, speakers and that you could then listen to where where do you get the tiny little plug <laughs> for the speakers but let me uh let, let me play for the audience a clip of the output of this tiny little radio
So there you have it. And, and you can tune in to the radio via our website. Uh, you just go to siam.com slash nano radio. Right. Derek and the nano dominoes. Yeah. And we have this wonderful photo of a guy listening to apparently nothing because this radio is so small it is invisible. That's right. That's right. This is, this is a, a radio in which, I mean, the, the carbon nanotube is I think 500 billionths of a meter long. I mean, it's just, it's the size of a virus. Uh, and, it, and yet, even though it is the size of a virus, it, it does all the, the four basic functions that you require to have of a, of a radio. That is, it, it serves as an antenna, uh, and it uh, also serves as uh, the, the tuner. Uh, it can then amplify that signal, and it can also serve as a, as a demodulator. That is, it separates out the sort of the musical signal from the underlying carrier wave. So it, it's amazing. And it opens up a number of intriguing technological possibilities for real nanoscale devices in the future. And it can be inserted by the government. <laughs> You're taking us back to the people who contact us with their interesting theories uh, right, once so again. I was, in fact. So uh, there's, there's an interesting uh, connection between two of the articles in the magazine. I don't know if you're aware of it. I just happen to notice it. Irvin Schrodinger. Schrodinger is mentioned in two completely different articles in this issue. One is in the uh, Spooky Action at a Distance article. Right. And the other is in the tuberculosis article. He is listed as a person who suffered from tuberculosis. Uh, yes. yes. So why don't we talk about that TB article? It's it, we, we forget sometimes in the first world about TB. Uh, it crops up in big cities occasionally and, and become it gets back on the radar. But uh, out there in the world at large, TB is still a huge problem. Right. Tuberculosis is still one of the, you know, the great plagues on all of mankind. It's actually been probably uh, afflicting human beings and uh, their, their close kin for a half million years. It's an extremely old uh, sort of infection. And sadly, uh, it's one that is, uh, is, is, has not gone away, um, even though it's not much of a factor in our lives here in most of the industrialized world today. Today, uh, it's still a major, major factor in lots of parts of the developing world. And, of course, it still hasn't even disappeared uh, from uh, places like here in the United States. In fact, a lot of people would be rather shocked to see the level of, uh, of uh, tuberculosis incidence um, that actually is still, uh, uh, that does still exist in the United States, including uh, what is most worrisome to a lot of health authorities, which are uh, some extremely nasty, multi-drug-resistant forms of tuberculosis that uh, really we need to find some better ways of being able to contain. Yeah, we saw that here in New York City only about 10, 12 years ago. There was another kind of spike in tuberculosis uh, of the multi-drug variety, resistant variety, and that was brought under control with very, very rigorous efforts by the public health people to actually go and watch people take their, their medications. And just recently we had the uh, discussion of tuberculosis in Siberia, mm -hmm. where it's it's an awful problem. Um, so what are a couple of the new tactics that are discussed in the piece? Well, uh, essentially a lot of the what's being done these days is that we're starting to exploit more and more of our understanding about the, the tubercula tuberculosis microorganism in, in more detail and how it is that it interacts with its with its human host. Um, the more we know about that, the more avenues are open up for ways that we might be able to intervene at, at different levels and being able to uh, to stop the infection or be able to limit the extent to which it, it can be passed on. So uh, fortunately, there are some sorts of 
new pharmaceuticals in development, but this all takes uh, a lot of time. And, uh, and, and you mentioned actually, unfortunately, the part of what has made the, the modern scourge of, of TB so bad is, is that we have unwittingly contributed to it. Um, the, the rise of the multi-drug resistant TB, that is strains of TB that resist uh, all of the, the, the best antibiotics against it. That's the result of our having done a bad job in using those antibiotics in the past. Um, we had far too many people who, maybe for understandable reasons, did not complete their antibiotic treatment. They did not take all the drugs that they should have for as long as they should have. And uh, their bodies then became incubators for different types of resistant TB. And then you put those people together with other people just like them. Right. In, a, in close quarters, in uh, shelters, for example. Mm-hmm. And you are actually creating the conditions for the generation evolutionarily of these superbugs. Right. That's right. Uh, and so this is in some ways the, the, the gravity of the modern TB threat is one that, that we humans are, are directly responsible for. And so we really need to find some ways of being able to address that more effectively. We got some other, uh, fun stuff, saving new brain cells. It turns out that, uh, when you challenge your brain, you, uh, you, do a really good job of making sure that the brain cells that are forming to take to to deal with that information also stick around longer. Yeah, this is an interesting point. I mean, it's it as I think everybody in this audience knows. Uh, the the old dogma used to be that adult humans like all adult mammals, that we didn't generate new brain cells. Um, what's become very clear over the past um, couple of decades is that, in fact, uh, there's considerably uh, more generation of new neurons, even in adult brains, than had, had once been believed. It's always been a little curious, uh, a little mysterious about exactly what those were doing. Given a lot of those uh, brain cells uh, seem to form down in the area of the hippocampus, which is involved with uh, memory and with learning, it, it was an easy jump to to uh, naturally assume that they must be involved with that in some way. And uh, what this article here in the April issue reviews is, is sort of what we have begun to learn about, a little bit about what those are doing and the circumstances that allow these new brain cells to come along to survive. Because that's part of what's interesting. Our brains are keep creating these new brain cells all the time. These new neurons are forming, and they will very frequently die um, shortly thereafter that, which seems kind of wasteful. What appears to be the case is that that when people are involved in in what they refer to as effortful learning, a certain certain kinds of learning uh, uh, tasks, that that seems to encourage those those uh, neurons of a certain age to hang around. Um, if the learning challenge is coming along too soon, they haven't mo- they haven't uh, matured enough to uh, to benefit. If it comes along too late, doesn't seem to make a difference. But uh, there seems to be a certain sweet spot of time that if these these neurons get uh, these new neurons get just old enough so that they can start to wire themselves in with the rest of the network of brain cells uh, that that are present that they can then get caught up in some pattern of activation that encourages them to survive what's also sort of curious though is is the question of well what exactly are they doing because uh learning is a very fast process and it it's 
pretty clear that just growing new brain cells is much too slow to be directly involved in helping you establish new memories. So in some way, it seems like this, this retention of these new neurons helps, uh, helps you by increasing your ability to lay down new memories. Uh, it's like it, it increases your capacity to uh, to add new memories and to learn new things, even though the new neurons that are surviving are not necessarily bound up with uh, with that process of establishing that those memories inside your inside your head. So still a little little unclear how, how all of that is going on, but it is certainly one more piece of evidence that suggests that uh, for people who who do as they're getting older and we all start to wonder a little bit about how we can try to keep our brains fit or naturally people who uh, suffer from Alzheimer's disease and certain other kinds of uh, of mental problems uh, that uh, that certain kinds of challenges may be very helpful in helping them maintain the 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 best possible mental nimbleness if you will i suggest uh, that to to really encourage your brain to be nimble just keep reading that article on the quantum threat to special relativity That'll that'll just light up your brain and make new cells and keep them young and keep them fast. Or really all the rest of the April issue of Scientific American. Steve, why stop there? When it comes out, actually, this is the March issue. Okay, let's do that then. <laughs> now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, water treatment plants are using tiny air bubbles to clean water. Story two, in 1989, a 747 with a couple of hundred people on board lost power in all four engines when it ran into a cloud of ash that had just been spewed out by a volcano in Alaska. Story three, it's healthier for a teenager to be heavy than to be a heavy smoker. And story four, sword swallowers help develop the medical procedure known as endoscopy. Time's up. Story four is true. In the 19th century, sword swallowers were enlisted to test the feasibility of shoving a long tube down the throat in the procedure now called endoscopy. For more, check out the February 27th episode of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. And story one is true. So-called micro-bubbles are being used in water treatment. Impurities stick to the tiny bubbles which float to the surface where a skimmer takes care of the rest. For more on modern water treatment, see our web feature, Want Clean Water? Turn on the lights. And story two is true. A 747 plummeted thousands of feet in 1989 after running into an ash cloud before the pilots regained control. You see, this is why monitoring volcanoes is a good thing. Alaska alone has 31 active volcanoes. All of which means that story three about obese teens being better off than teens who smoke a lot is totally bogus because a new study finds that obese teens and teens who are heavy smokers face the same risk of early death. The research appears in the British Medical Journal. 45,000 men were followed from their teens to the mid-50s. Men who smoked at least 10 cigarettes a day in their teens had the same risk of early death as obese men, defined by a body mass index of over 30. The death risk for both groups was twice that of men of normal weight, and obese smokers had five times the risk. Well, that's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. 
Check out Siam.com for the latest science news, blogs, videos, and all of our podcasts. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.